Thank you for joining us today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to stimulate thought, expand consciousness, and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that the vast majority of we humans are friendly tribal animals. And when we live in small enough communities in which we know each person by name or at minimum by face, we are collaborative enough to sustain everyone with the bare essentials of nutritious food, warm shelter, health care, and education provided with dignity, respect, kindness, and love. Today, we're bringing you another in our series called Confessions of the Psychedelic Elders. In this series, prominent people in the sciences and arts are going to reveal to you, our listeners, and the world, details of their courageous sub rosa self-experimentation with psychedelics over the past decades. The purpose of the series is to counter the decades of disinformation about psychedelics and inform the world that prominent, good citizens, contributory citizens, patriots, solid fathers and mothers have risked their careers and their very livelihoods in order to learn from psychedelics and to advance science. This week, my guest is my dear friend and colleague, the world-renowned ethnopharmacologist, Dr. Dennis McKenna. Dennis has conducted research in ethnopharmacology for over 40 years. He's a founding board member of the Hefter Research Institute and was a key investigator in the WASCA project, the first biomedical investigation of ayahuasca. He's the younger brother of Terence McKenna, who many of you are familiar with. From 2000 to 2017, Dennis taught courses on ethnopharmacology at the University of Minnesota. In the spring of 2019, in collaboration with colleagues in Canada and the United States, Dennis incorporated a new nonprofit, the McKenna Academy of Natural Philosophy. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Dennis. Thank you, Richard. It's a pleasure to be here, and it's a pleasure to see you after all these years. I think it's it been... must have been 2014 or something. Oh, my God. It went by that fast. Long, longer than I care to think about. But yes, you're, you're looking well. You're thriving, I can tell. Well, thank you. So, thank you. Very good to see you. I'm a psychedelic elder, as you are. Sadly, yes, we are. I guess that's a mantle that we have to we have to take now. You know, uh, people have said I'm a psychedelic elder. People have said I'm a legend. I think these are all preparatory to saying I'm totally irrelevant. The world moves on and leaves us geezers kind of uh, in the dust and uh, wondering, you know, I, I think 
probably neither you nor I ever thought that we would reach this place where we're seeing the changes that we're say, seeing now in the, in the sort of public uh, uh, sphere of, of interest in psychedelics, you know, I mean, it's a real, it's a true renaissance. It's a true renaissance. By the talking about age, I'm 82 now, Dennis. How old are you? Oh, I'm a youngster compared to you, Richard. In that case, uh, I feel so much better. Uh, <laughs> I, I I just turned 70 last December. Well, I, that's true. You are a youngster for me. I can hardly remember uh, back that far. <laughs> um, and by right. way by way of background, are you presently living with somebody? Yes, I live with my wife, uh, Sheila, who is, uh, we've been together 40 years. Oh, my word. And uh, we're still talking to each other most of the time. And, you know, and we've been, we've been very lucky. She's, she's my anchor in lots of ways. She's not this crazy psychedelic hippie chick or anything like that. She's a very grounded person. And uh, conveniently enough for me, she happens to be Canadian, which I met her in graduate school in when I was doing my PhD at UBC back in the early 80s. And uh, we've been together since then. And, uh, and because she's Canadian, I get to move up to Canada. And I'm now officially recognized permanent resident of Canada in good standing, more or less at least until they catch up with who I really am. But <laughs> where whereabouts you know, in Canada are you, Dennis? Uh British Columbia. Little little town called Abbotsford. Yes. Not so little actually, about a hundred thousand people. Oh my. about a you you know the you know the place? No, but a hundred thousand isn't little to me. I live in a town of seven thousand. Well there you are. Yeah. It's Compared to Vancouver, I guess it's little. Mm-hmm. It's about an hour east of Vancouver, and uh, and you know about as close as we could uh, get when we moved up here to find a place we could afford, you know. But uh, it's it's worked out. We're happy to be here. It's a nice, quiet little town. Not a whole lot happens here, which is the way I like it, except the occasional gang killing and that sort of thing. But I guess that's everywhere these days. So I'm going to. So t- yeah, we're we're in Abbotsford now. Uh, after being in Minnesota since 1992, we moved there the end of 1992. You know, and, I, uh, I I'm going to ask you about the gangs, and I'm going to ask you about something else as well. Uh, after we do the initial part of the confessions interview, but for now, I'm going to continue. <laughs> with the confessions, but I do have two burning questions I'm going to ask you later. Um, Okay. By way of background, by the way, I'm going to take a side note here. You're married for 40 years, right from the hip, blink, without thinking. What are three things that have contributed to the longevity of your marriage? Uh, Well, uh, uh, tolerance. Yes. Uh, uh, Basic respect for each other yes and uh you know affection tolerance yeah. respect and affection tolerance yeah. affect tolerance respect and, and 
affection. And I, I guess by that I mean, you know, we are we are soulmates in a certain way, even though you know we've it's it's something that we've discovered over forty years of marriage, and even though we have diverse diverse interests, we also have uh, you know complementary interests. So that helps, you know, and uh, I think maybe the secret to a good marriage is that your partner needs to be also your best friend. Mm -hmm. And I would say that Sheila is my best friend. She, uh, I can, I trust her. Uh, I hope that she trusts me. She knows I'm a crazy guy, a wacko and all that, but she tolerates it, you know, and <laughs> she doesn't have to participate in it to appreciate it. <laughs> Dennis, were you brought up with religion? Uh, yes, I was raised in a Catholic church, uh, and I'm still recovering. I, I don't think uh, I don't think you ever get free from that. But yes, I, I think of myself as a recovering Catholic. Uh -huh. uh, I rejected all of that years ago, but it it changes your world. It, it it twists you, Richard, to grow up in a religion like that. You know, so I'm I'm still uh probably dealing with the trauma of being a good catholic back when i was a kid you know and i was i was into it i mean i bought into it i was an altar boy with all that comes with that and i took it very seriously at the time but then i sort of around uh, the threshold of adolescence began to uh realize that a lot of this just doesn't make any sense on any level. So I rejected it. Of course, my brother being four years ahead of me, you know, kind of led the charge in that respect. You know, we both rejected the church. Uh, and, but I've never looked back. I don't, I don't regret it at all. Uh, what is and, your, and so, yeah, I, I, I have that, that trauma to deal with and probably always will. What is your present conception of, of what's called God? Well, uh, you know, on one hand, I'm a, I'm a reductionist scientist, you know, uh, and, uh, but on the other hand, I'm also a mystic in a certain sense. And I don't think you can, you can, uh, be familiar with psychedelic substances without realizing that, you know, there's a whole lot we don't understand. Uh, and science is a good tool to try to, uh, expand the boundaries of our understanding, but it's also inherently flawed because it's limited. You know, it's limited to what we can see, what we can measure and quantify. There's a lot more going on uh, than just that, I think, in being. But if I, if I had, I, I believe that consciousness is a fundamental property uh, of nature. I think it's built into nature at the most fundamental levels. You know, so if I were anything, if I were any kind of religious person, I'd have to say I'm kind of an animist. You know, my worldview is closer to indigenous worldviews where consciousness is in everything. From, I think, the most fundamental levels of 
of existence, the subatomic, sub even the quantum level on up. I think that it's built into the nature of reality. So my that's my conception of God, that it's not something separate from us. We're part of it. And if anything, if I had to, you know, glibly say what I think God is, I think God is the universe waking up to itself, becoming conscious of itself. At you, least that's what I'd like to think. Thank you. Yes, God and everything. It sounds very Spinoza-ish, pantheistic. Mm. Um, you used the word re describing yourself as a reductionist scientist. Tell our listeners what you mean when you say a reductionist scientist. Well, first of all, let me say, you know, science by its very nature uh, sort of uh, demands reductionism. You know, I mean, that's that's the premise. Reductionism is when you uh, when you postulate that if you can't measure it, if you can't see it, if you can't quantify it, it you know, it's a way of relating to the physical world in a in a tangible way and uh, you know it's it's a it's a consequence of that old cartesian dualism that that really split off the world of matter the world of phenomena from the world of consciousness but it's an artificial split you know but uh so i am not i am i am when I put my scientist hat on, uh, then I'm a reductionist, you know, but I also wear that hat provisionally knowing that science is a good tool, but not by any means the whole story. There are other ways of knowing that science doesn't really encompass, but, you know, as a uh, sort of a, a tool, a platform from which to ask questions of nature and get answers back that are more or less verifiable within limits, I think science is very useful. But I think science has to be practiced from the, the perspective that uh, inherently it's always going to furnish an incomplete picture of the nature of reality. You know, I mean, that the holy grail of science is to, uh, you know, come up with a theory of everything, so-called theory of everything, uh, at least in physics, that that's the goal. I don't know if that's inherently possible, but I mean, it's a, it's a, it, it, it in fact is not achievable uh, based on what we know now because it leaves out so many aspects of what we know to be existence just from our our own individual subjective experience science has no way to measure many of these things or, or quantify many of these things i mean maybe it will in some day but right now we're not there how old were you when you had your first experience with mind-altering substance well uh I guess depends on what the substance is and what you want to call it. I, I, my first experience with uh, mind-altering substances was uh, uh, was with cannabis, and it would have been I was 15 years old, so it would have been uh, 1966. 
And again, that's because of my brother. <laughs> uh, he, he was a student at Berkeley at the time and uh, used to come back to Paonia, Colorado, this little podunk town in western Colorado where we grew up. And I was still stuck there, but he came back one summer, uh, the summer of uh, 2016, and and had some cannabis, you know, and uh, and so that's when I was introduced to cannabis. Uh, he brought his new cute Jewish girlfriend, and spent we he spent two or three weeks here and. In those days, it's interesting, you know, nobody knew about any of this stuff, certainly not in Paonia. We just went across the street from my house, which was the city park. The city park was across the street from where I lived in Paonia. And we went over there and we spread out a blanket and broke out some beverages and he broke out a pipe and we lit up and started talking all in plain sight, uh, figuring nobody would know what we were doing anyway, or not that they would even care, probably. So that was my first experience. And, and actually, it took, uh, uh, you know, it, it took several exposures under those circumstances for me to actually feel anything. But on the third or fourth time, I began to sort of get it uh, uh, oh this is what it's about you know this is what it's supposed to be like and that so it was cannabis was my first my first encounter and then uh a year later uh in in 1967 i went to berkeley it was the summer of love yeah we were all into the countercultural thing then and for some reason my father gave me permission to go to Berkeley and spend part of the summer with uh, with Terence, who was living there at the time, right in the middle of all this countercultural ferment. I have no idea what possessed my father to let me do this because he, he was highly disapproving of all that, especially anything having to do with drugs. But you know, for some reason, he gave me permission to go out with a friend and spend the summer of love in Berkeley and San Francisco. Maybe, you know, I, I have no idea. Maybe he was living through me vicariously or something. But uh, anyway, so that summer, I had my first LSD experience in Berkeley and uh, uh, Tilden Park, if you happen to know where that is. I do know Berkeley where it Hills. is. I know Tilden yeah. Park, and I would like to hear now about your first LSD experience. <laughs> You're asking me a lot. You think I recall my first LSD experience? <laughs> You're giving well, me a lot of credit. <laughs> okay. Well, if you don't, then take us to the next experience. No, I I do recall it. I recall it. It's it was it was interesting. It was just my friend and I. My very close friend from, you know, high school uh, friend, uh, both of us kind of the, the rebels of our class in a certain way. Well, we, uh, you know, we scored some acid on the street on Telegraph Avenue. We ran into this crazy looking, long haired, wild eyed person who was uh, selling acid. I said, oh, yeah, man, this is really good stuff, really good shit. You know, and he sold us what amounted to an aspirin, 
with a little purple dot in the center of it. I remember this very well, a little purple dot. And we took it and he was as good as his word. It was quite, quite full, you know, quite a sufficient dose. And I don't know what we expected from the thing, uh, whether hallucinations or mystical insights or, you know, uh, that kind of thing. What we got was was uh, uh, kind of a, a phylogenetic regression, in a sense. We returned to our primate we reconnected with our primate uh, selves, you know. I mean, we were like monkeys, literally, up in the woods, not sitting quietly in meditation, but climbing trees and howling and uh, beating our chests and, and carrying on. It was probably a good thing we were not close to any civilized or decent people at that time. But that was what it was, kind of. It was very much a regression to... Uh, you know, a, a state of pre-human state, uh, at least at least in our our perception. That was that was one aspect of it. Uh, but you know, LSD trips are long, and uh, but that that's what I remember from it mostly was how uh, how anomalous it was. How how it was not at all what I thought it was going to be. That was that was the thing. Uh, it was it was this other experience, but nonetheless, very, very good, very positive. Was it positive enough that after the experience, you thought to yourself, "I'm going to do this again"? Oh yeah, there was no question about it. No question about <laughs> it. Well, take, certainly, certainly, take- it was a revelation, and. Uh, and you know, as you know, and so I acted on that. I mean, it it was the my threshold in my my crossing the threshold into the experience of a, a real psychedelic. I don't consider cannabis a real psychedelic. Um, it has its virtues, but it's not a true psychedelic in the way I think of it. Yeah, it was extremely positive, and one of the things that uh, uh, you know. Uh, kind of set me on this path. Uh, uh, I had never taken uh, DMT at the time, uh, and Terence was quite interested in DMT and actually had DMT, uh, uh, which was not easy to find in those days. But he had it, and he thought it was much more profound and interesting than LSD. I did not take it that summer, uh, however, but I took some back with me to Paonia. And eventually, uh, you know, a few months after that, went to, we had uh, a group of friends in Paonia, kind of the, I guess these days we would have been called nerds or, uh, you know, just a group of kind of odd kids that were into weird stuff like psychedelics, science fiction, and so on. We used to go up to uh, this campground in a valley close to the town called Hubbard Creek, relatively isolated. That's where we went to do our, uh, you know, to to take our trucks. (laughs) And that's when I did DMT uh, was up there. And that was even more of a revelation. I mean, 
that DMT, I think, more than LSD was a catalyst for both me and Terrence to uh, kind of dedicate our lives to this because they were, it was so profound and so utterly unlike anything we'd experienced, you know, and, uh, uh, and we were, we were interested in the anomalous. We were interested in crazy stuff. You know, we were, we were steeped in, uh, in science fiction, uh, and with its notions of things like extra dimensional travel, you know, that kind of thing. So psychedelics fit right into that. It was really, that was the basis of our fascination with psychedelics rather than a, a, uh, you know, a, a, a spiritual quest for enlightenment. It wasn't really that for us. It was more the idea that uh, psychedelics were a way to access other dimensions. You know, that, that's how we can conceptualize it. And perhaps it was, perhaps it is. But, you know, it's all these things. As you know, Richard, the psychedelic experience is, uh, you know, so complex. It will, and so very, it can conform itself to whatever vessel you put it into. You know, uh, whatever conceptual lens you want to apply, it will, it will, you know, you can perceive it through these different, different points of view. Uh, but that, that's what got me started. Well, I am well aware, as you know, I am of your life history. And we've talked before on this program. Uh, one time we talked about uh, some of your life history and we talked about the book that you wrote, The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss, you know, about your mm -hmm. adventures with your brother. But that was six years ago. And a lot of our listeners do not know your life history. And so I would like you to take us now on a journey. Please take us on a journey that started in Berkeley with that LSD experience. It continued with the DMT that Terence gave you that you brought back to Colorado. And now please take us on a journey of your life and experimentation as best you can. And try to be, <laughs> well, this is a tough question, I know it, but and, yeah. try, and try to be chronological if you can. All right, well, how much time do we have? We have, this is now, well, this is now, uh, internet, Dennis. So whereas in the past, we would tie down to one hour on the radio, we now have more time. So we can go on. Okay. All right. Well, uh, so I, uh, uh, I had that LSD experience in Berkeley and I was, uh, I think, 67. I was uh, just going into my junior year in high school at that time. And, uh, uh, but I realized as a result of that LSD experience that this is what I wanted to pursue in some way. I wanted to, uh, as I've often said in my talks, the DMT to Terrence and me, it wasn't simply the most interesting drug we'd ever taken. And in fact, our, our experience with drugs had been rather limited, but it was it was the most interesting thing we ever had encountered. It just seemed far more interesting than anything else in our universe. And 
And, you know, in some ways, 50 years later, I can almost say that really hasn't changed in some way. I think psychedelics as a group are one of the most interesting uh, areas to, to pursue if you're looking for answers. And, and as a naturally curious person, I was. Uh, so after that, I went back. I completed high school uh and uh, in 1968, two uh, interesting books came up on my radar. Uh, one of them my brother gave to me for my 18th birthday. It was the uh, first edition of the teachings of Don Juan. And, uh, of course, we know now that the teachings of Don Juan and a lot of what Castaneda uh, published was probably made up. You know, but it doesn't really matter because at the time I didn't know that. And that that teachings of Don Juan sort of woke me up to the fact that there was an ethnographic, historical, cultural aspects to psychedelics, that these were nothing new, you know, that the 60s excitement about psychedelics was, was uh, you know, uh, more or less... Uh, linked to Timothy Leary and the the cultural ferment of the time, uh, but uh, they had a, a history, a cultural history of thousands of years, and so that woke me up to that. And at the same time, the same summer or around the same time, another book came to light, came across my desk somehow, and it was called uh, the Ethnopharmacologic Search for Psychoactive Drugs. And uh, it was the proceedings of a symposium that was sponsored by NIMH, of all institutions, in San Francisco in 1967. And uh, it was the proceedings of this closed symposium that came up on my radar. And uh, I, I read that book, and uh, it became very important to me. So this book uh, was, uh, and this happens to be a mid-conditioned copy. I've got a much, a much older, much more a little closer, tattered one. A little closer to the camera, Dennis, and down right there, a little higher. Yes, yes, I think. Okay, now we can see it. Okay. Right. So for the U.S. government to put... <laughs> This out was amazing because this was this had all the leading lights of uh, Schultes and Shulgin, Andrew Weil, all of these high-profile individuals had contributed to this symposium, which was a closed affair, and the only thing the taxpayers ever got got from it was this book. Somehow or other, this book fell into my hands. And I read it from cover to cover, and I was quite except, excited by it. And why I'm going on at such length about this is that uh, it was the other side, the other leaf of the the uh, the other page. If on the other hand, uh, on one hand, you had Castaneda, the teachings of Don Juan, and that whole uh, you know sort of window into the ethnographic uh, side of psychedelics. This other was the, was the scientific side. And I realized 
you know, with a big emphasis on botany and chemistry and, and that kind of thing. And I, and I, these things seem very complimentary to me. I, I realized that, I, I guess, a, a revelation that came out of this was that, hey, there's real science here. There's actually a body of knowledge around these uh the study of these things and a discipline called ethnopharmacology and maybe i should be an ethnopharmacologist it seemed to open the the door to the fact that maybe this would be my career path so uh and in my teenage 18 year old brain you know i was thinking hey i can get paid to get stoned you know <laughs> i think that was probably that naive but as a result of those books, uh, I went when I started as a freshman in, in uh, undergraduate at the University of Colorado in 1969. That affected what I took, you know. That affected my uh, my courses. I took uh, courses. That, uh, there was no, no such thing as an ethnobotany uh, major at that time. Nobody or knew about ethnobotany. So I took a lot of anthropology, particularly comparative religions and chemistry, botany, uh, all of those things related to that to kind of forge my own major in, in ethno, ethnopharmacology. So that was the basis of my, my undergraduate work. But then, as you know, and everybody who knows Terence and my story in 1971, I, we we took off together to the jungles of South America to look for, uh, we didn't know what exactly, uh, something that we were convinced, well, with our experiences with DMT, we were convinced that the motive for going to South America, we were, one of the problems with DMT is it's so short in duration that you can barely begin to grasp what's happening by the time it's over and so all you come back with or which is good enough but you come back with a sense of astonishment just had an incredible experience but you can't bring a lot of content back beyond that and so we were interested in finding a orally active form of dmt dmt is not orally active we thought if we could find an orally active form of dmt then we could spend more time in that place and kind of get our sea legs for trying to figure out what was going. And we were, again, we were working under the, the hypothesis, uh, maybe that's too formal a word to, uh, you know, to use here. It wasn't really a testable hypothesis, but our, our idea was that these things really were portals to other dimensions that we could essentially go to someplace else and DMT opened up those realms. So again, this was not about a spiritual quest. We approached this almost like engineers, you know, we, we, we uh, thought of this as, uh, uh, you know, our, our ticket to uh, hyperspace, if you want to call it that. And uh, so, so we read about, at the time, 1971, the importance of uh, the admixture plants in ayahuasca, and you know, ayahuasca is an orally active form of DMT. The 
one component of the vine contains beta-carboline alkaloids, the vine itself, and then these admixture plants contain DMT. And you brew them together and they're orally active. But it, it, and you know, the, the beta-carbolines inhibit breakdown of DMT, which is why if you just, you can eat DMT or make tea out of DMT-containing plants all day, but if you don't have the beta-carbolines, then they won't have an effect. So we, uh, but we didn't know about that. It was not really understood at that time that ayahuasca was a, that that was the mechanism of its action. That came later. We stumbled on a paper by Schultes called Verola as an orally active hallucinogen. That was the title of the paper, one of his uh, botanical museum leaflet uh, publications. And we jumped all over that. We thought, aha, this is exactly what we're looking for. And Verola, as you may know, it's a genus of trees in the nutmeg family, the Meristocaceae. And Verola is used in the form of snuffs by many tribes in the Amazon. The sap of the of the tree is very high in DMT and 5-methoxy DMT. So many groups in the Amazon make snuffs out of it because to get around that oral inactivity problem. But a couple of them, particularly the Watoto, made an oral preparation out of Farola. That's why it was interesting to us. And it was interesting enough that we thought, aha, this is the secret. This is, we have to go for this thing to see if we can, you know, penetrate to other dimensions. So we pretty much dropped everything. I mean, my brother at that time had been on the lamb from Interpol for two years, hanging out in Indonesia and Japan, uh, uh, you know, uh, trying to lie low after a certain uh, hash bust in 1969, which we don't need to go into. Uh, but I was a student. I was an undergraduate. Anyway, I stopped. I dropped out of school temporarily and went down with Terence and some other people to this place called La Churrera in the Colombian Amazonas. And why did we go to La Churrera? That was the ancestral home of the Witoto. And they were the people that had this secret, which we thought of, uh, you know, in a kind of tongue-in-cheek way, really. But, you know, from the standpoint of alchemy and so on, we thought we were in the quest of the secret. And we actually called ourselves, that's the origin of the, the Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. You know, it was uh, my brother and myself and three of our traveling companions, all equally enthusiastic about psychedelics, equally deluded probably about the quest. But anyway, that was our intrepid band that, that decided to go to La Chirera in uh, in the spring of 1971. And when we got to La Chirera, well, we had met uh, an anthropologist uh, who was studying the Witoto uh, in a village some distance from La Chirera that we passed through on the way to La Chirera. I mean, we had been told in Bogota that he was there and we would likely encounter him, and we did encounter him. And when he found out that we were looking for Okuhe, well, in the first place, he was completely appalled that we'd showed up at all, you know, because we were 
pretty wild looking. I mean, we looked like we just stepped out of Hate Ashbury, which we really had. You know, we were far more colorful than the than the Watoto. You know, I mean, we had long linen, we wore white linen clothes and had beards down to our waists and, you know, bells and beads and, you know, we were, we were a colorful bunch, shall we say. And we just show up on this poor man's doorstep, you know, or hot step, I should place at this village called El Encanto. Of course, in those days, you couldn't call ahead, you couldn't send a text or anything. So we just show up, and I'm sure we really ruined his day <laughs> to see see these crazy people from San Francisco show up. And uh, and then, if that wasn't bad enough, we said, well, hey, Doc, tell us where we can get this ukulele, you know? And that really set him off, and he, he said, you can't just go into these villages and start talking about this. This is, this is their... Uh, this is their main shamanic magic thing. This is their this is their true secret, and they will not be happy that you are interested in it, or even that you know about it. They'll probably kill you. Uh, uh, he was he was he was a little he was a little uh, a little bit excitable, probably because he chewed coca constantly. Uh, so he was, he was all, always a little bit excitable. And, and, but we, we said, well, okay, you know, uh, we'll be cool. We won't, we won't just go in there and start asking about it. You know, we'll be discreet. And so we went on to La Chirera, and all of this is in, in my book. It was quite a trek. We got to La Chirera, and, uh, and we actually took what the doc said fairly seriously. We thought we're not just going to go around starting shouting this the name of this drug which was called ukuhe will hang out chill out and kind of feel it out uh but when we got to la Chirera, what we found was that there were they had cleared the area around this mission settlement this capuchin mission settlement of forest there was pasture there and they brought in the cebu cattle uh and the Cebu cattle, the the dung of the Cebu cattle happens to be the preferred substrate for Psilocybe cubensis, which is the tra trans, you know, global, world world distributed tropical psilocybin mushroom, and it, it shows up pretty much in any ecology where you have cattle in the rainy tropics. And at La Chirera, there was a bumper crop at that time in January, February, and March of 1971. Huge clusters of these mushrooms growing out of every cow pie. We had never had experience with them. Our only experience had been one encounter on the way into La Chirera, but we knew what they were, and we had a very cavalier attitude about them. We thought, well, this is great. We can have fun with these while we're waiting for Ukuhe to turn up, while we're waiting for the real secret. Well, the mushrooms quickly made it clear to us after we started eating them quite a lot of them and quite frequently, like on a daily basis, the mushrooms, uh, you know, made it clear that they were the real secret. And uh, they quickly rearranged our priorities. And, uh, uh, you know, because it started downloading all this crazy information, uh, which I 
don't want to get too far into the uh, the nuts and bolts of that, or we'll never get out of here. But, <laughs> but uh, people people can read about it in the Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. So actually, this year was the uh, 50th anniversary of the so-called experiment at La Chirera. Uh-huh. So people can look at the McKenna Academy website and, and uh, we did an event to honor that occasion. So uh, there's a, there's a podcast and a few other things on the McKenna Academy website, which is just uh, McKenna.academy and people can look at that event, but the mushroom transmitted a lot of information, you know, about, what we could do to actually affect a biomolecular transformation of our own physiology and <laughs> turn us into, I don't know what, superconducting super beings or something. Let's just leave it at that. We tried to uh, carry out the experiment as per the instructions that the mushrooms were transmitting. It didn't work because it couldn't work, you know. Uh, It would have involved a violation of several physical laws on a number of levels. So it didn't work, but it was a pivotal point in our lives, my brothers and my life, uh, and in some ways affirmed a lot of what we had come for, even though it wasn't exactly what we thought would happen. But... I guess in all true adventures and what you think is going to happen is never what really happens, really not the most important thing. I guess the one thing tangible that came out of that experiment at La Chirera, that trip to La Chirera, uh, a couple of things. One was my brothers got the inspiration for his theory about time that's become known as time wave zero. So that, that, sort of conceptual structure was something that he came back with the the bare outlines of that idea and developed it over the next few decades. And the other thing that we brought back from La Chirera that had the most impact and maybe most important was nothing revelatory or supernatural or anything like that. It was the spores of the mushrooms which we brought back with us, you know, made spore prints on pieces of paper, brought them back. And over the next two or three years, I moved to Berkeley at some point during this process. Uh, We fiddled around with them and we figured out how to grow these things. And uh, that has had an impact on society in a certain way. If there was any tangible uh, effect of our running around in the jungle all wide-eyed and, and uh, you know, probably half mad. But but that actually put the mushrooms into uh, the hands of many people. And, and this, you know, a simple technique that any reasonably patient 10th uh, grader could figure out, you know, muck around in the basement. You could grow mushrooms using simple ingredients that you could buy at the grocery store. So that made the mushroom accessible to a much wider demographic in the country. And and our motivation for, for doing it was a couple so that we could have access to the experience ourselves but also so other people could could 
access the experience and confirm or not that what we had experienced at La Terrera was really going on or were we completely deluded or were the experiences as strange as they seem to be to us and of course we now know that they many people did confirm that it really created you know at a time when the, the war on drugs was kind of at its height uh the mushrooms kind of kept off to the side and they were not roundly condemned by everybody uh, unlike things like lsd and many people experienced them and uh, you're seeing i think the the consequences of that the fact that many people grew up uh you know with psychedelics and and in my generation uh probably yours too the most commonly encountered psychedelic was mushrooms, you know, and of course LSD is out there too, but many, many people had those experiences with mushrooms and it was in part because we, we, we figured out how to do it, how to grow them. And then we published this little book called the psilocybin magic mushroom growers guide, which was nothing more than a pamphlet really. I mean, it was a very thin book. It just laid out the methodologies to do it. And many people did it. So people say, well, what was your main contribution to all of this? If I had to say one thing, it was the fact that we, we discovered this simple method and we shared it with the world. And that in some ways has impacted society in some ways. So that, uh, all of that took place just so long ago. I, it's hard to think about it. You know, that was the seventies. Uh, and, uh, we published the magic mushroom growers guide in 1975 we published a book called The Invisible Landscape, Mind Hallucinogens and the I Ching, which was our attempt to give a scientific rationale for our experiences of La Chirera, uh in 1975. Uh, but I, I continued uh, my own path of more or less uh, specializing in science. I uh, went, I went to the University of Hawaii to get my master's degree uh, in botany, studying again chemistry and plant, plant chemistry and so on. Uh, I ended up and I continued with my doctoral studies uh, at the University of British Columbia, which I started in 1979. And uh, my thesis, uh, my doctoral research at that at that point was a was a biomedical investigate or not a biomedical a a, a uh, phytochemical and, and ethnobotanical investigation of ayahuasca and it was actually a comparison between ayahuasca and, and ukuhe this orally active uh varola preparation which when we found it eventually by the way back in 71 or 72 71 and actually bioassay that it turns out to be turned out to be not so interesting but anyway that was the basis of my thesis work at the university of british columbia and then i began a series of postdocs uh i, I could skip through i went to the uh laboratory of clinical psychiatry or clinical pharmacology at, 
NIMH. I got a fellowship uh, there. I moved out there in 1986 uh, for a couple of years. And then I did another postdoc at Shaman at, uh, sorry, at Stanford. I came back to the Bay Area in 1988 and had a postdoc at Stanford. At this time, I was thinking, I mean, I was basically a botanist and I was interested in, in plants and, and plant chemistries. Many times at NIH, I uh, was asked, uh, well, you're a botanist, so what are you doing in a laboratory of neuroscience? You know, uh, you're kind of a square peg in a round hole around here. I'm not a pure neuroscientist. And I said, well, that's, that's why I'm here. You know, I'm here to learn neuroscience. And by the way, psychedelics are plant molecules. So that's the connection. Uh, Anyway, I did those postdocs, uh, Stanford, uh, uh, NIMH, Stanford, and then Stanford. And then about the time that was ending, I, I joined on to uh, a new startup company called Shaman Pharmaceuticals, which was, you can tell from the name, it was ethnobotany-driven drug discovery. And uh, I joined Shaman Pharmaceuticals in 1990. And uh, uh, I worked with them a couple of years. I, I was disillusioned in some ways with their, with their approach, but uh, it, was, it was very interesting. Since I had come out of Stanford with all this uh, uh, expertise in running receptor assays, that's mainly what I did at, at Stanford was I ran uh, radio ligand receptor assays with serotonin agonists trying to map out the hallucinogen uh, receptors, called them hallucinogens in those days. So I came to uh, Shaman with those skills and set up. Let me, uh, let me interrupt for one second, Dennis. While this sure. is going on, thank you. And, and, yeah. you're, and you're at NIMH and you're at Stanford and you're at Shaman. Are you personally experimenting with psychedelics? And if so, which ones? And, and what were you up to? Uh, well, yes, yes. I was experimenting uh, because I knew how to grow mushrooms. So it was mainly mushrooms I was experimenting with. And occasionally DMT and other things, LSD. Uh, yeah, I was experimenting. And what was happening? Were they changing your life? Were they changing your value system? Were they changing? What were they changing about you? Well, I don't know if they were changing my value system because I think my early experiences pretty much, you know, molded my value system. Huh. I was I was taking them because I was interested in exploring consciousness, you know, basically, and the revelations that I was getting from mushrooms and, and these other things uh, probably affected, you know, undoubtedly affected my worldview. Uh, uh, but, you know, I, I can't say, I mean, there was no uh, aha moment, or if there was, it was decades in the past, but I did take the mushrooms. I continued to take them for on occasion just uh, because there's a lot out there to explore. Do you think, did they change? Do you think they changed the way you were in daily life, how you treated other people, how you related to your wife? 
Uh, yeah, uh, I would say so. Um, I, I think one of the things that uh, that psychedelic experiences can do, at least for you know, uh, like by this time ayahuasca became as important a psychedelic for me as mushrooms, you know, maybe more important for a number of years, I got involved in ayahuasca. And uh, ayahuasca, uh, one of the things that the lessons, if you will, that often is a take home from ayahuasca is a recognition of the limitations of our knowledge, you know, uh, how little we really know. And uh, ayahuasca is good to remind us because especially for scientists, it's, uh, uh, you know, scientists are, are prone to, uh, uh, you know, to, to, to arrogance, I guess you could say. There's, there's that scientific attitude that we have everything figured out. You know, there's just a few more T's to cross and I's to dot, but we got this thing. We have it figured out. And the psychedelics are a strong reminder if you take them frequently or even if you don't take them. But if you take them, it will often, at least in my own experience, it was a strong reminder that we don't have anything figured out. You know, psych science looks at a small fraction of reality. There is so much more that is unknown than science purports to know that there's no room for arrogance, you know, there's room for humility and recognizing, I think, the limitations of our, the scientific reductionist worldview that we were talking about and realizing that that only takes you so far, you know, and that there's uh, almost an infinite amount of things that, that may be known that are not necessarily knowable scientifically, nonetheless worth trying to understand. So in that sense, I think it's kept me uh, open-minded. I think psychedelics and, and humble to a certain extent, uh, at least in terms of my thinking about what I know, because uh, I realize I don't know shit and I don't think anybody else does. And I get this message all the time from psychedelics sometimes gently and sometimes not so gently but it's a constant uh you know reminder of the limitations of our knowledge and this realm of uh out there the realm of the knowable that's beyond what you might call or what they call these days the default mode network which is kind of the artificial uh, reality, I sometimes call it the reality hallucination that we create for ourselves. And uh, because it's a comfortable place and it allows us to navigate in the world, we can't be loaded on psychedelics all the time. You know, it makes it difficult to drive cars, open a can of tuna fish and <laughs> do the ordinary, you know, day-to-day -day things that we have to do in, in daily life. So that's one reason why psychedelics need to be taken in a, a very under very special circumstances, you know, a special set and setting and so on. So in that sense, they've been influential to me uh, as kind of personal allies, personal uh, teachers. And then, uh, 
you know, I, I think when you're involved in psychedelics, uh, to the extent that we were, there's a certain messianic impulse, you know, uh, and this, this is, this has been a, uh, this has been a pitfall for people. There's, you know, the revelations are so profound. What you think you're learning is so profound. You can think, well, this is so amazing. I have to, I have to represent it to the world. I have to, uh, you know, turn people on or convince people to take psychedelics and, and preach about it and talk about it and all that. Uh, and so, you know, I have been doing that, uh, as well as my brother. I don't, I don't claim to be, and I don't want the role, uh, you know, uh, of being a, uh, I'm not a messiah for psychedelics. I'm, I'm not a guru. I'm none of those things, you know, uh, uh, because another thing that psychedelics teach you, and I think this may be a, one of the more important lessons is you have to think for yourself, you know, everybody's psychedelic experience is unique and everyone's experience and their experience of being in the world is unique. And the beauty of psychedelics is, you know, you, you it does not require faith. You know, in fact, faith is kind of an impediment. What it requires is courage. It requires a certain open-mindedness, a willingness to drink the cup or smoke the pipe or whatever it takes to set your assumptions aside, to set your expectations aside and surrender to it, you know, and let it happen. And when that happens, it delivers, you know, then the learning can, uh, can take place. And, uh, uh, you know, I think one of the reasons that sometimes conversations about psychedelics and drugs in general are so difficult is you've got, if you've got, if you have not had a psychedelic experience, you can talk about it all you like, and yet you can't really convey to someone what it's really like. And they, the person that you're talking about, talking to, may have all sorts of assumptions about what it's like, what it could be like, but there's only one way to really uh, resolve that, and that is they have to find the courage, you know, forget faith, forget belief, find the courage to trust yourself enough to have the experience and then make of it what you will, you know, and you don't listen to anybody else what they think it is. I mean, you can listen, but you don't have to uh, internalize it necessarily. Uh, the important thing is, you know, we have, we can think for ourselves and we can make of it what, what we will. And I think, I think psychedelics encourage that, uh, uh, you know, trust in ourselves and an understanding that the world is much more uh, complex and and miraculous, really, than we imagine. You know, and day to day life, it's not always apparent, but we are living in a marvelous world. The very fact that we're here, you know, thinking beings on this planet, uh, you know, lost in some, you know, some backwater region of the galactic arm what the hell is going on, you know, that, that we're even here. And uh, so I think it, 
I think they're useful for, for that. They're also, I think, useful for helping us appreciate the connectedness of all things, all consciousnesses are connected to this to nature and uh, by the same token the realization that we're way out of sync with nature you know that the great deal of our problem as a species is that we become estranged from nature and we're we're in disharmony with nature and that's creating a great deal of our of our issues as a species you know uh, we're we're uh, we're laboring under this thousand, two thousand year old Western delusion that comes out of Judeo Christianity that we own nature or it exists for us to exploit and dominate. And nature doesn't like that. And in fact, it's not true. We, that's a big task for, for us as a species as we evolve, uh, you know, into the third millennium of history is, uh, you know, we have to understand what we need to do to get back in harmony with nature because nature actually is running the show, you know, and nature has a way of uh, protecting itself. And if, if our species is the main threat to the existence of life on the planet, which it may well be at this point, then, you know, nature has mechanisms for dealing with that you know because i i am a believer in the sort of gaia hypothesis that the that the you know community of planetary life itself is an organism and organisms and we're part of that but we're the at this point we're you know the damage that we're that we're inflicting on the planet we we have to be considered a pathogen almost you know uh the crazy monkeys are the problem, you know, and uh, psychedelics make that abundantly clear. And uh, so they're useful learning tools. And I, I think it's a revelation that many people need to share. And, and it is propagating, you know, through the meme sphere or whatever you want to call it. Uh, uh, you know, but whether catalyzed by psychedelics or not. So how many how many times roughly have you taken ayahuasca dennis oh uh, you know i don't know i've lost track i, I okay. don't even think about it anymore all right uh, fair enough yeah i mean uh i don't know somewhere around a thousand to between a thousand and two thousand times but I don't keep track. I've lost since Can you, long since lost track. Rather and than it doesn't ra matter. It, yeah, it rather than numbers, how, maybe you could tell us something more through your lifespan about frequency. Like, is it a couple of times a month always, or a couple of times a week always, or what's the regimen? No, well, there is the uh, the regimen. It's, it's not like there's a regular regimen. The regimen for me is related to time that I spend in South America because I, I tend to do it in South America when I go down there. So when I'm organizing retreats and so on, which I have been uh, for a while, uh, in, in fact, even, you know, since, well, starting really sort of at the end of the 90s, I started organizing retreats at different places and then sort of 
ramp that up uh, in the, you know, after 2010. Uh, but so if I, uh, you know, I, I tend to confine my drinking to those retreats. So if I go down there two or three times a year, or if I do two or three t- retreats a year, then I do it during the retreats. And maybe in a given retreat, I'll take it 10 times and then months will pass when I don't take it. And then I come back and end up doing it. So it's very much related to place as well as time. Uh-huh. I don't tend to uh, seek it out, uh, at least ayahuasca here and do it here. Cause I, I, uh, you know, I, I enjoy doing it in the traditional ceremonial context. Uh, I, I don't say that it has to be that way. Many people use it that way or they have, it, there needs to be a structure for it. Like any psychedelics, there needs to be, an appropriate set and setting. It's just that I happen to like the traditional setting for taking ayahuasca because, you know, the shamans, the curanderos, they know how to structure the session. If they know what they're doing, their ikaros are beautiful, their, their ceremonies are beautiful. And psychedelics need a vessel, you know, they need a context in which to unfold. So that's where I where I do it. And as far as mushrooms are concerned, I, I don't, you know, I, I do those more often on my own, uh, but I don't really do them that often, to be honest, maybe two or three times a year. Why has, have you decreased your usage so significantly? Why have I decreased Yes, it? what's led to the decrease in usage? Well, after a while, it's like you know you kind of get the message. I mean, you know, you know what the uh, what the territory is, uh, and uh, you know, I mean, I would never reach the point. I, I don't think I reach the point where where I think it was Rob Das who said, you know, once you get the message, hang up the phone. You know, I'm not really one of those people that wants to hang up the phone. I, and, and in fact, you know, psychedelics are not an answering machine, <laughs> you know, and it's not, I mean, psychedelics are teachers, you know, and whether you attribute intelligence to them or whether they, uh, you know, render accessible some part of yourself that may present as something that's not the self, uh, they always have things to learn, but I, uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe I I I, uh, I, I can't say. I, it's not like I make a uh, conscious decision to take less or take more or whatever. I just kind of uh, these things are there. They're available, and I do them when it seems uh, when it seems appropriate or the occasion is appropriate. And, and that's one of the one of the one of the aspects of doing the retreats because. You know, you're going to a place, a uh, very special place, to to take the psychedelics in a very mm-hmm. special uh, set and setting. So you know what you're doing there, and the intention is to do it. Uh, without that, there's less focus on, on set and setting. Mushrooms, unlike, uh, I think ayahuasca really uh, demands that sort of collective context of 
group context. Mushrooms are going to be taken by an individual or by one or two people together. You don't need so much ritual or you, it, you know, it works without it. Ritual is good, but it doesn't have to be part of the experience. And what would you say about LSD in that regard? Well, kind of the same thing, you know, like mushrooms. I don't, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't, uh, my, my experience with LSD is uh, rare for one thing these days. And again, it just depends on the, on the circumstances. But I, I don't really uh, seek out a, a a ritual context or anything like that for LSD. Often, if I do it just because of the situation that happens to be that I am in nature and I'm in a situation where I can uh, walk around and hike around and so on. So maybe it's not unlike, uh, you know, my first encounter with LSD, which was back in the, in the 60s. It was very much uh, kind of that kind of an experience experience but on other occasions i i can take lsd and have a very uh deep sort of internal connection so what do you want what kind of comments can you make about microdosing with lsd or with microdosing with mushrooms well microdosing with mushrooms and microdosing with lsd are are different uh I think that microdosing with mushrooms is probably fine. Uh, I have some concerns about microdosing with LSD because of its uh, interaction with the 5-HT2B receptor. I believe it's the I believe it's the 2B receptor, or 1B receptor. One of the receptors uh, can cause this uh, this uh, condition called valvular uh, uh, hypertrophy. It, it causes a proliferation of valvular tissue in the heart. And uh, this can be a chronic condition that uh, uh, there, it cannot be reversed other than by a valve replacement. And it's not clear that LSD can do this, but it could be potentially more. Uh, it, it, it has a greater potential than mushrooms, than psilocybin, to do this because uh, of its dissociation con, uh, constant. It, it tends to uh, LSB, LSD binds to the serotonin receptor in a unique way, and it tends not to dissociate very easily. So you get this agonist effect. Uh, stimulation of the receptor that is chronic and it could last a long time and if you do it every day uh, you may have these long-term cardiac issues uh, particularly you know, which, in the particularly in the valve like an aortic stenosis or something like that something like that yeah I, it's not a stenosis it's a it's a proliferation of valvular tissue there's there's a term for it which, which uh, well you called it uh, hypertrophy which means it's it's they're getting larger in some way right it is it is it's 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 not uh valvular it's not uh coronary occlusion necessarily right but it's a proliferation of of valvular tissue and uh there were drugs back in the beginning of the, you know, around the turn of 
the 20th century in the late 90s, a drug called FenFen, which was a serotonin agonist. and uh, Used for weight loss. It was a weight loss compound. That's exactly right. And it was taken off the market because it had this effect. And chronic uh, daily dosing with LSD is potentially put people at risk for this kind of uh, effect. And I can look it up and, and send you more information about it, but it puts people more at risk for this kind of effect. So I, I would say people should maybe think twice about microdosing with LSD because, it, because of this dissociation, this way that it binds to the receptor. It binds to the receptor so part of the, the, the enzymatic pocket that it binds to folds over the molecule and keeps it tightly bound. And so it never, you know, and so, you know, this chronic effect, agonist effect persists. Psilocybin or psilocin, active form of psilocybin, dissociates from the receptor site more easily. Uh, and so you don't have this issue with that. That said, so th that's a concern with microdosing uh, that one would have. Uh, I uh, honestly, I'm kind of a skeptic about microdosing. Uh, uh, I, I have dabbled with it. Uh, I can't see much of an effect. And uh, the problem, and of course, it's all based on what the substance is, what the regimen is, what the dose is, and so on. So I'm not saying that my experience is, is, uh, is everyone else's, but, uh, uh, you know, one of the criticisms that been uh leveled at microdosing is there's no real good studies of whether there's really an effect here or not. And uh, there was recently a study, uh, more or less, uh, I think it was Johns Hopkins that did a study recently, basically placebo-controlled, double-blind, all the proper uh, protocols and study design and so on that showed that there was no difference between microdosing and and taking a placebo in terms of the parameters that were measured which were like depression you know different ways of of uh, measuring depression and so on so i'm kind of a skeptic about microdosing uh -huh. you're saying it was a similar study to what uh, roland griffiths did with uh, with psilocybin with depression where they you know that study, of course, where they, they found uh, improvement in depression after a year after one administration plus, plus therapy. Right, right. Yeah. But these were full doses of psilocybin. Yes. And we're here was my. Have you talked to Jim Fadiman about microdosing? Well, I, I know his shtick. Yeah, I, I mean, I've talked to him. I think it would yes. be a productive conversation. I'd like to get you two together. He, he, his uh, protocol that he recommends... Uh, is one day on and then two days off, and then one day on and two days off in order to mm -hmm. let the neurotransmitters, you know, get, get back into balance. But from what, yeah. you, but, but your concern is even that amount, which would end up being maybe uh, eight or 10 times a month, might still lead to this uh, valvular hypertrophy. 
Yes, yes, possibly so. Mm -hmm. uh, well, that's an important I, warning. I, I think that is a concern. Uh -huh. you know? uh, not a concern when you take LSD occasionally, you know, in full doses. This is this is the this is the result of this chronic stimulation, constant stimulation of yes. the 5-HT uh, uh, one, 1B or 2B. I think it's the 1B receptors. You think it's 5-HT 1B? Yeah. I, I can look it up on, uh, yeah. on PubMed and, and yeah. get back to you. Nick will probably know the answer to that too, Nick Cozy. Oh, he totally. Yeah, yeah totally. Well, I'll be looking forward to talking to Nick about this uh, valvular hypertrophy also. This is very interesting information and important, Dennis. I'm glad because, mm -hmm. you know, I've been interviewing a lot of elders, and uh, most of them are talking about the positive ways that these psychedelics, psychedelics have uh, affected their lives. But it's also important for us to reveal, you know, uh, landmines, warnings, uh, possibilities, uh, so that the public knows about those things. You know, you and I and, and mm -hmm. the, and the uh, colleagues that we associate with are very much into full transparency and no secrets. And, right. Uh, yes. Right. Yeah, and there's... Uh, uh, well, yeah, this, this is just one, one thing that people should know about. It's not necessarily to discourage it. And as we know in this area, everybody's unique, you know. I mean, there may, may well be people that respond to microdosing on an individual basis and, and perceive benefits from it. And maybe that's a placebo effect, you know. But you're a physician. You know that the placebo effect is a very strong effect. <laughs> it sure is. So, so whether it's the whether it's the microdose or the or the placebo effect, if it's a real effect and you perceive it and you and you get benefit from it, there's no reason to to discontinue it if it works for you. Uh, but then there is this other aspect about this this potential valvular problem. Yes. And people should look more closely at that. We will. I want to come back to something you said earlier that I took note in the back of my head with. And you said we were looking for biomolecular ways to change physiology. And of course, we didn't find those ways. You recall saying that? Uh, yes. 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 Well, I'm not sure that you failed. I think you were a pioneer in that search because there's now, what, as you well know, a field called epigenetics. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. And and more of us and more of us are looking for ways to make changes internally. And mm -hmm. I have raised the question of whether psychedelics maybe the tools that will enable us to focus the mind to make internal changes. And I'm wondering whether it's possible to use psychedelics to take volitional control of involutional processes. And let me give an example of what I mean here. If you cut the back of your hand, Dennis, you know that your hand was going to heal up 
and you know how it's going to heal up in terms of your experience. It, it, mm -hmm. You may have to put a bandage on it, and uh, if it's not too uh, wide a wound, it'll come back together. Otherwise, you put a butterfly bandage on it or maybe even have it stitched. Mm -hmm. But then what's going to happen is it's going to the tissue is going to come together. It's going to do something we call forming a scab, and then the skin will come together more, and then the scab falls off, and then we have what we call a scar, and then the scar maybe will remain or maybe it'll go away. Now, uh -huh. that whole healing process, when it happens on the back of Dennis McKenna's hand, that whole healing process was done by Dennis McKenna. It wasn't done by Richard Miller, Frank Smith, or anybody else in the world. You were totally responsible for that. At the same time, I think it's fair to say, correct me if I'm mistaken, you don't know how you did it. <laughs> no. <laughs> right? You don't know how right. you did it. But you did right. it. So we call that an involutional process, right? We don't know how we did it. Suppose mm -hmm. you could take control of that. I'm raising the question of whether psychedelics, is there some way in the depth of the psychedelic experience, we can learn how to focus the mind in such a way as to learn how we did that biochemically, electrically, so that we can then apply that learning of how we did that on the back of our hand with that wound so that we could possibly apply that learning to other organs in the bottom and the bottom in the body. Uh -huh. I'm raising that as a question. I'm not saying it's it's totally it's doable or not doable. I'm raising it as a possibility of taking that kind of control. And your work, when you use that in your description earlier in our interview about biomolecular changes of physiology, you rang a bell. So I knew I had to come back to it and discuss it with you a few minutes. Well, it's possible. You know, I mean, this was kind of what we were trying to do at, at La Chirera, you yes. know, and it turned out to be a spectacular failure in some ways, you know. I mean, certainly the, the outcome that we predicted didn't happen. Namely? But I think, you know, I, I think that... Uh, what was the outcome you predicted that didn't happen? Uh, uh, that we would be transformed into immortal superconducting uh, uh, information fields, basically. <laughs> well, again, again, it didn't happen, but I think you were the early, you were the early pioneers in it happening, in it happening. And I'm going to, yeah. you know, I, I really I don't know if I should be doing this because this is a an interview, of course, about about um, your life and confessions. But I, I I'm going to take a, a a sidebar here and say this: <laughs> we're on the verge of being able to collect the information that we have stored in our brains and download it onto a chip. You know that. I know that. We're going to be able to I do don't it. know that I know that, Richard. No? Well... I th think we're a long way from that, honestly. 
But that, but okay, then it's a matter of distance. But do you agree that we're going to get there? I have no idea. You're not sure. Okay. No. Well, I'm because more... I don't think you can necessarily reduce consciousness. I'm not even sure that consciousness is entirely localized in the brain. You know, I, 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 I if you could build a simulation of the human brain that was like your brain or my brain, uh, but reflected in circus, circuitry and nanotech or whatever you do, would it be conscious in the way that you and I are conscious? I don't know that we can say that. I don't know about that either because you're, you've changed it now from the way I stated it, which is download the information to consciousness. Consciousness for me is something above and beyond the information. And that's I learned that from taking psychedelics, that my consciousness exists separate. It's it's part of, but it's not the same as the information. Information is information. Consciousness is sort of like what Heinlein called grokking. It's a greater, a greater sphere, a greater appreciation of a wholeness, whereas information is a piece. It's a part. And so right. I'm thinking that the information can be downloaded onto the chip. Not necessarily the consciousness, but the information, because the information is stored. And if it's stored, it ought to be able to be retrieved. Well, anyway, where I'm, where I'm headed with it is that if we can do that and get that into a chip, all the information, and put that into a robot, mm -hmm. and, and the robot then has all the information on the planet in one chip inside of itself, then it might be able to then figure out a way to do what your brother and yourself were wanting to do was to transform into light beings. So <laughs> I know that's a bit of a stretch, but I, <laughs> but, but it's, 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 I just wanted to share it to you yeah. as, as, as friends. I want to come back, of course, to your to your experience because that's really what this is about, um, Richard. Yeah. Do, do you do you like science fiction? Uh, I have at different times, but if you have a book to recommend, I'd be happy to write it down. Well, there's a great book that is uh, relevant to this conversation. It's by one of my favorite authors, Neil Stevenson, who wrote uh, Cryptonomicon, among other really interesting science fiction books but this one is called uh it's called the fall or dodge in hell and uh it's it's very interesting it's about a guy who uh, he's like this tech billionaire in in seattle based in seattle that's where neil is and uh and he has it all set up so that when he dies uh, he can get his consciousness uploaded into this software that he's had ready to go, you know. And uh, uh, and uh, so he does die unexpectedly. He goes to the doctor for some routine procedure, and he doesn't come out of the anesthesia. So he's alive, you know, but not conscious. And so all of the mechanisms he set up legally and otherwise to to make this happen kick into place and he actually does upload his consciousness into a 
you know, cybernetic, some kind of a cybernetic uh -huh. receptacle. And what happens after that, I won't spoil it for Good. you, but it's a very interesting book. Oh, thank you, Dennis. Oh, it's, it's, right up, it's right up my alley. I mean, the, he and I are in the same pod, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Worth, worth reading. Actually, anything he's written is worth reading, but that's the latest one. Anyway, I, I wrote, I wrote I it down. It out there. I wrote yeah. it down right away. Uh, I'll, I'll throw one back at you in case you're not familiar. It's not a book. It's a scientist uh, named Michael Levin at uh, Tufts University who's doing uh, bioelectrical stimulation of cells. And that's all I'll tell you. Michael Levin at Tufts. Check him out. A you check out a YouTube and we'll talk together about okay. it. Okay. All right. Okay. I really want to hear good. what you think about about him afterwards. Okay. Back okay. to our subject at hand. How and, and we'll be finishing up soon. I won't keep you. Um, Sorry, my ear is itching. Sorry. Not at all. Not at all. Scratching okay. ears is totally acceptable. Um, <laughs> um, what can you tell us about the way psychedel your psychedelic experiences have affected your relationship? with your wife of 40 years? Well, um, you know, um, they were important when we shared those experiences when we were young and courting and all that, you know. Uh, I mean, she was open to it. She grew up in the same generation I did. So there were times when she was living uh, in communes and that sort of thing. Uh, she sort of left all that behind. You know, we don't, she's not a psychedelic fanatic like I am. Uh, we haven't, uh, we haven't shared psychedelic experiences for a long time. We did go to South America uh, about 10 years ago and to a retreat in Brazil and, and had uh, shared ayahuasca experiences and so on. So I, I can't say she's, she's. Uh, well, what I'm wanting to know, Dennis, is do you feel that the psychedelics have enabled you to be kinder to each other, to, to be more loving, to be even more tolerant, respectful, and affectionate yeah i would say so those but, are the uh, those are the three things remember when i asked you the about what has contributed to this wonderful 40 years that you've had together just give it you know as quick blink and you said those three words tolerance respect and affection so i'm i'm asking you about that right you also said truth but beauty and goodness so, <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, I think, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think the psychedelics have contributed to that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, give psychedelics all the credit, you know, I mean, we're just working to be decent human beings. I think anybody is trying to be the best person that they can. Yes. And when you have a life partner like I do, that's that's 
you know, we've been together 40 years, roughly. I mean, we, we got, we really started dating and so on in 1980. So that's, that's 40 years. Uh, uh, but I, I think it's wrong to say that, you know, before the psychedelics, you know, because of psychedelics, we've made it work. I, I don't want to leave the impression that it's all been easy. They've had our rough spots, you know, and I think anybody that's together for 40 years is going to have some rough spots. Definitely. You know, and, and we've, we've been through that. And, yes. uh but we've come out the other side and we still appreciate each other, you know. And, Have and you I used MDMA together? We haven't used MDMA together, you know. And one of the reasons we haven't is that she has this pre prejudice against uh, things that are synthetic, <laughs> you know. Ah. Don't ask me why, but she doesn't want to take, she doesn't want to take MDMA. Yes. Uh, you know, and, and we're... Uh, you know, I mean, I mean, I guess, I guess, when you're together, you're always working on the relationship. Yeah. You know, but we, we reach a certain point where we feel well, we've got a good connection. You know, we're not working every day, or we not don't feel like uh, what's the way to put it? We don't feel like we have to struggle to uh -huh. be in harmony. Uh -huh. And uh, you know, in general things are pretty good that, that's 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 lovely it's lovely to hear it's it's more than lovely to hear it's touching to hear and, and I, i'm very happy for you um thank you is you're welcome i'm wondering if there's anything we want to say further than that that was a pretty nice ending with what you just said is there any, any last words on psychedelics and your psychedelic life that you might want to say before we conclude? Well, yeah, maybe just, just a couple of things to keep in mind as we've, as we've talked about already, remember how little, you know, you uh -huh. know, and so, don't forget to be astonished. You know, I mean, there's so much we don't know and so much that's amazing. Uh, and so let yourself be astonished and let your curiosity, don't kill curiosity. I think curiosity is really something that keeps us young and thinking. Curiosity is what drives science in the true sense. But it's also what dis what drives our discovery of the world, you know. So, as as we live in the world, we discover it. So, curiosity is a very good thing to have. And don't you know? And and as we get older, we can, you know, there's a tendency to say, well, there's not much new, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, I've seen it all, done it all, but I'm not one of those people, you know. I'm I'm open to the possibility that every day something I've never heard of that's incredible, amazing, astonishing will come on the radar. And uh, doesn't happen every day, but it happens often enough to keep life interesting. So that's all you can really hope for, I think. 
Thank you, Dennis. And thank you very much for being with me today. I've enjoyed our time together immensely. And thank I, you, Richard. Always a pleasure. A real pleasure. And thank you all for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, with special thanks to our producer, Charlie Dice, and our IT specialist, David Springer, who, working together as a team, make this broadcast possible. Please join me again next week, Tuesday at 9 o'clock Pacific Standard Time for our next stimulating broadcast. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it is essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.